Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. It's the goings-on in Quebec that antagonize, infuriate sometimes, and make you sort of grin. Um, but over the last couple of days, it was the firing by the electorate of Montreal Mayor Denis Coderre that really caught all of our attention. We thought the emperor was in there for life, and apparently not, so he's gone. The Montreal voters booted him out. And there's Bill 62, no face veil, if receiving or delivering public service. I want to talk to uh, my friend, Beryl Weissman about that, and there's uh, and there's a, a distaste for pipeline delivered Alberta oil sands product to New Brunswick through Quebec, but uh, Quebec welcomes Middle East oil shipped by tanker through the St. Lawrence River ecosystem. I don't get it. Beryl Weissman is the editor in chief of the Suburban, Quebec's largest circulation English language newspaper. He also ran for mayor of the Anglo stronghold Westmount, and uh, if if I know anything about you, Beryl, you shook it up. We did that, and we didn't pander, and we didn't pander or tailor the message. But and it was a great way to do politics on the municipal level. It's you and the people, and nobody's telling you what to say. Well, you would always, you always call it straight. You always call it the way you see it, and you don't care what the response is. And I've never known you to stray from the truth, uh, and and I mean that in a in a in a very uh, objective sense. I've listened to you many times. You used to come on the air after me when we were both in Montreal. Yep. And uh, and and I listen to you in the car, and you always bang on, and talk about direct. So, Mr. Wiseman, why was Denny Kader defeated? He looked secure from outside Quebec. What okay. happened? You got to follow this because your analysis of Quebec is dead on, as most of your analyses are of anything. He was defeated for the very reasons you said, and the very reasons that are becoming politically correct. And he was defeated by a government, by a party, by a, by a mayor, who has pledged to do more of what irritated people. How's that for an opening? Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. So I want to repeat this. And this is, again, uh, as Churchill said, a democratic vote is only a validation of the democratic process, not the truth of the ideas of the winners. So you had a mayor who was, believe it or not, really doing a good job restoring stuff in Montreal. He had gotten control of City Hall. He had dealt with the corruption issues. He had put in an inspector general. Uh, Money was beginning to flow back in the city. This was a mayor who wanted to do business. He was cutting uh, the bureaucracy. Uh, All the right things to make a city grow. Remember, when he came into office, Montreal was dead last in investment among cities of a million people or more. It didn't rise as fast as he would have liked, but it was rising. So here came the problem. He was brought down for what's left in the popular imagination. Horrible opposition to the pit bull ban. He banned pit bulls because a woman was killed by a pit bull. Believe it or not, that issue was everywhere. In every election, whether it was Montreal, whether it was the diverse city of Westmount, whether it was one of the boroughs of Montreal in Pierrefonds, this issue was all over the place. Now, we talked about it on this program. He was brought down, number two, because of the e-race, the electric car race. And the figures were never released for exactly how many tickets were given away free, how many tickets were sold. Um, And he was brought down, number three, by the spending on Montreal's 375th birthday. That that included $40 million for lighting the Jacques Cartier Bridge and $3.5 million, wait for it, for granite tree stump sculptures on Mount Royal. <laughs> uh, really? How much? Right? How la- much? Roy. How much? Roy. Yes. You're laughing. Yes, I am laughing. Three and a half million. Through my wallet. Three and a half million for a couple of dozen tree stump sculptures on Mount Royal. 
And a statue of a Ferris wheel that doesn't really move in Montreal North for about a couple of million more. Emperor Denis. No. Now, see, so here's the problem. All those things were objectionable, but all those things are matters that this government that was elected with, by the way, 51.1% of the vote, and they have 51% of the city council. So Valerie Plante, Projet Montreal, is all green all the time. One of the centerpieces of her, of her promises were a larger tree canopy for Montreal and a pink line, as she called it, extension of the metro, which nobody has money to build. Nobody paid attention to the, that disconnect between what they objected to in Denny Coderre and what Valerie Plant was promising. They just objected to the optics. Now, so let's take them in reverse order. Let's take the spending. The spending for the Montreal 375th, most of it came from Ottawa. And it was use it or, or lose it. What people objected to, prob- and I, I think rightly, is that too much of it was about monuments, stuff like the lights on the, on the Jacques Cartier Bridge, which, by the way, the idea for that came from Gilbert Rozon, the founder of the Just for the Last Festival, was in a bit of trouble on sexual harassment issues mm-hmm. uh, the past month. And yes, there was a legitimate complaint about that because he, the, uh, uh, the mayor could have used that money, for example, as some groups have suggested, to leave a lasting legacy of social housing. There's a lot of money. Ottawa shoveled in uh, something close to $200 million for this Montreal 375th. The E-Race certainly could have used more transparency. The Pitbull ban, uh, bad, these kind of prohibitions have been proven time and again to be absolutely uh, useless, and it's simply a response to the death of one woman. Now, so why am I drawing a comparison between that and Valérie Plante? There's an expression in Quebec these days, uh, it's all about the politics of the mothers and the Greens. In other words, if little Johnny or Jill falls off their tricycle, we're going to make another prohibition and another order about wearing uh, uh, more secure helmets on your head. If the Greens want more trees, well, give them more trees. If they want more green space, give them more green space. If they want more bike paths, even give them more, more bike paths. That was an issue everywhere. Everybody's afraid to speak the truth. And yet, Coderre, if I had one criticism of him, it, it was he got into the pandering to these groups instead of just sticking to what he was doing really well. So now the, the people of Montreal have elected a government that is totally committed to this above all else. So nobody's going to look at the fact, for example, that only 36,000 people, Roy, in Montreal and Longueuil, uh use the Bixie. So out of 2 million people, 36,000 people use this free bike service called the Bixie, which has eaten up about 800 parking spots just in the downtown core, contributed to the economic uh, disaster that the downtown core is, but nobody will speak a truth about it that, you know what, for 36,000 people out of 2 million, we spent 82 million cover- the taxpayers in Montreal covering the losses of the Dixie. All right, Beryl, hold on. How much? I have to take a break, but I'll ask you this question first, and then I want to ask you another question that's more far-reaching about what happened in Montreal. How much of the money is paid for by the Canadian taxpayer? How much of it is paid for by the municipal taxpayer in Montreal or the provincial taxpayer in Quebec? Well, the money for the... the, the, the for all the, the, the stuff. Objection. I'm sorry? For all the stuff. Well, uh, I'll the money for the stuff that was really objectionable, the lighting of the bridge, the, the, the tree stump sculptures. I'm, I'm sorry to tell your audience that that was just about $200 million was federal money, and about $100 million was local and provincial. So All right, yeah, hold, Canada paid for two-thirds of it. Hold on, Beryl. That's going to make people in Alberta very happy. From the Suburban, he's the editor-in-chief of Quebec's largest English circulation uh, daily, a weekly newspaper, and I want to find out whether there's a lesson for politicians uh, municipally and otherwise in Canada in the results in the Montreal election. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Scott Newark is with us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, and Scott is going to be explaining what's going on 
federally as 11 senators and members of parliament swore a secrecy oath and gained wide access to material from Canada's national security agencies. It's called the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Scott York, former Alberta prosecutor, security advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada, now a security and justice policy analyst and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Scott, is this the first time that non-cabinet members will have the power to review national security agencies? And then the second question, what is it they'll see? Is it restricted um, to domestic information? Um, This is the first time that a committee of uh, members of parliament and uh, of the Senate will actually have a specific mandate to do this. And the mandate is broader than what it would normally be for a committee. So, yes, they will have access to information that otherwise uh, members of Parliament and uh, the Senate would not have. There are some restrictions potentially that's there. We're going to have to see how that plays out. But what's really important about this, Roy, is that this is uh, finally something that has happened. People have been recommending creating this kind of a you know, legis- legislative branch of government uh, uh, oversight review committee authority uh, for a decade and more, and it was specifically recommended to the Harper government who rejected it, and this was one of the things that uh, Justin Trudeau had said that he would put into place, and they recently passed a bill, C-22, to do it, Uh, and just uh, last Monday they actually named the 11 people that uh, you've mentioned. So ever the optimist, I actually think this is a potentially really positive development, uh, because it reflects a, a capability uh, to actually ask the right questions and to get the right answers and to uh, to make some uh, recommendations. Now, it, it's entirely fair to point out that there are, you know, uh, potential restrictions where the ministers can say, I'm not going to release that information or anything else. Um, as I say, ever the optimist, let's see how this thing plays out, but I think it's a potentially really significant and positive development. So what are they, I mean, what are their powers? What are they, what are, what are they empowered to do? If they, they see information, the what, what can they do with it? Uh, anybody they want to come before them, and it'll be in-camera uh, examination. They're given a special uh, support uh, staff, and uh, which hasn't been named yet. You know, to do the kind of substantive research. Think of it. Think of it this way, Roy. This is what 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 co- really caught my attention as well, too. Over the years, you and I have discussed so many different cases, and you know that have caught public attention about something. But we've always what we've always tried to do, though, is ask the right questions to find out what actually happened and or what didn't happen, and why not, and then to try to. And we've always tried to do this, and so does this committee have this power actually to make recommendations to improve things. Now, how do you That's avoid important. it becoming how do you avoid it becoming partisan political? Well, that will be uh, one of the challenges and we're going to have to wait to see how that unfolds. Uh, it'll depend on the individuals that are there. There's some interesting people named at the committee um, on uh, both sides of the uh, uh, of the aisle. There's a former um, member of the Security Intelligence Review Committee former Ontario minister, uh, uh, Ontario, uh, sorry, former senior RCMP and Ottawa police chief, uh, Vern White, Gord Brown, who's the MP, full disclosure, he's a friend of mine who I did work for years ago. He, Gord, was on the National Security Committee and reviewed the original anti-terrorism legislation. Very determined guy to ask questions. Uh, There's a a former staffer for CERC who's on there, who's now an MP. There's a former Amnesty International uh, representative. And David McGinty's the chairman. Yeah, David McGinty's the chairman, who's a lawyer, who's got international uh, experience as well, too. I mean, in all fairness, we're going to have to wait to see how that plays out. But I've had some experience in this kind of a model, and this can produce really significant positive results. Okay, so now the committee will have some level of oversight. But what oversight does the committee have? In other words, how much of what they will see, how much of what they will uh, be investigating will become public knowledge? Well, the, that's one of the uh, interesting things about the, uh, the mandate that it's been given, because they're required to file reports with Parliament. They're allowed to, you know, initiate their own investigations. Mm-hmm. They can initiate uh, investigations to matters referred to them by the minister. But any of the reports that they submit to Parliament must be submitted first to the prime minister. 
Okay, and that certainly has raised some eyebrows about, you know, why exactly that is. Mm-hmm. And ministers are entitled to withhold information if they think it would compromise national security. And doesn't the PMO also have power to redact what the committee yes. sees? Yes, that, at least in the legislation. Now, again, we haven't seen how that has played out yet. Right. And just because that kind of a restriction is there doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be used. And the fact that, you know, this committee has that potential, and that's been my experience as well, too, is that once people are in the position where they're able to ask the right questions, you know, and get the right answers and make positive recommendations, my sense is, or my experiences as well, too, is that that public interest tends to prevail over the partisan interest. And I I admit that I'm being optimistic in saying that, but that has actually been my experience. So what are the issues they might be looking at out of the gate? Would we be looking yeah. at the Canada-U.S. border yeah. Uh, yeah. matters? What, what, what are the sorts of things that you expect this committee well, to I get their noses into right away, Scott? I wrote a paper on that for uh, Frontline Security a while ago, and I just made a bunch of suggestions. And uh, you've identified, one, the Canada-U.S. border security issues. You know, looking, for example, at the Safe Third Country Agreement. Why haven't we decided to... Uh, amended to get rid of the exceptions that are allowing these illegal entries. Why is CBSA denied operational responsibility for between uh, port of entry enforcement? There's a whole bunch of different uh, uh, issues. And uh, let me just summarize it this way. What I would recommend to them, and what I did, is to look at those, um, uh, to do it in in two ways. One is the actual larger issues, like the, the border stuff that we're talking about, or maybe whether Canada needs to, for example, develop a better strategy for dealing with Canadians uh, detained abroad on terrorism cases other than issuing apologies and cutting them checks. But they should also look at, and this is something, again, I had experience with this uh, in my days with the Ontario government with the Canadian Police Association. You look at individual cases, okay, and see what happened or what didn't happen in an individual case, and you got the right people in front of you to ask, well, why didn't this happen? And you can, you can get insights from that, both uh, whether legal changes are needed or policy changes or operational changes. Yeah. It's a really good way I, fi- I have found in my career, in effect, to determine what's wrong and make substantive recommendations and also to empower the people who are trying Scott, to... Scott, is, is there a period of time that would be logical to assume we'll be able to assess whether or not this committee is doing what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah, probably within uh, within a year when it's uh, doing its reports, and we'll see. Uh, we won't probably know what specific issues are being investigated by it. Yeah. Uh, take a look as well. So they're not just going to they're not just going to disappear and be they're not just going to disappear and be another expensive little exclusive body. I certainly hope not. Uh, but in a year from now, I think we will be able to. Uh, and you know, you may never know, and you've seen this as well too. In, even in the stuff that we do, Roy. Mm. Uh, change may occur, uh, and it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily identified that it came, you know, the source that it came from. Mm-hmm. We used to call it leaving no fingerprints. I don't care whether you get the credit or not, as long as the right thing gets done. Right. Right. Well, I will keep an eye on it. Scott, thank you very much for the time. All right. Thanks Roy. for the explanation. Appreciate that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Zudi Jasser is a distinguished American Muslim who was invited by Canada to testify before the Parliamentary Committee reviewing the controversial Motion M103, or Motion 103, on Islamophobia. During his presentation, Dr. Jasser was attacked by Liberal MP and uh, fellow Muslim Arif Virani as being an extremist because he associates with Canadian Muslim Rahil Raza. She's the author of Their Jihad, Not My Jihad. And... uh, Rahil Raza was, of course, given a standing ovation after she spoke in Canada's parliament. Dr. Jasser is requesting that Mr. Varani debate him publicly on this program, and uh, we're glad to have Zudi Jasser join us on the show today. Let me just tell you that he's a nuclear cardiologist, past president of the Arizona Medical Association, former lieutenant commander of the U.S. Navy, president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement and author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. And Zudi, you have been speaking on this program for more than 10 years, and I have never known you to say anything that was in the slightest could be interpreted as extremist. 
You've always been a voice of calm reason. So it must have been a tremendous surprise uh, by the way you were uh, treated and, and welcomed to Canada's Parliament. Yeah, it's just uh, it's fascinating, Roy, and uh, thanks for having me back. It's uh, you know this is sort of the lay of the land right now in uh, partisan politics, which is that uh, you shut down debate on substance, on facts, on reason. You shut it down by calling the other person a bigot, an extremist. And this was my fear, and the reason I testified on this M103 was the term itself, Islamophobia, is put forth because they don't want real debate. They want anyone who even criticizes Islam. Islam is not a person, it's an idea. They didn't call this M103 about bigotry towards Muslims or towards minorities, even though they... You know, as they were lecturing me, even though they invited me to provide evidence, I was there to provide evidence, not to, not to uh, uh, be lectured to or scolded to. And yet, uh, Mr. Varani and others uh, in the liberal uh, side simply took up their time lecturing to me, and I could have looked at their previous testimony to do that, but instead they wasted the, the Canadian population's time in getting this 200-plus-day period of uh, investigation into M103. Uh, they're wasting it with simply partisan politics and calling anyone who disagrees with them an extremist. And I'm a Muslim. And another Muslim on that panel called me an extremist, which sort of testifies to what I was saying. He called me an extremist because I, I compared some of the advocates of M103 with the same methods done in theocracies and dictatorships in the Middle East that shut down dissent from government by calling uh, dissenters and dissidents uh, anti-Muslim or anti-Islam rather than uh, free-thinking prisoners of conscience, and uh, he repelled at that and called me an extremist and Raheel an extremist for doing that. Uh, two people who are the furthest from being an extremist, and Mr. Varani should maybe look up uh, the most recent history in, in Canada's parliament. As I said, when Raheel Raza spoke to the parliament, she received a standing ovation, not done to extremists or for extremists. So, what did you say? Do you know specifically what you said that irritated the liberals on the on the panel or is it just if you if you don't accept 103 then they're immediately going to be attacking well what upset him and i think this is why uh the the muslim parliamentarian uh, decided to uh, uh he, he got uh, very uh exercised about this was i called him out on the issue that uh, these issues that i'm advocating for which are uh, a part and parcel of a secular republic which is about women's rights gay rights free speech this is supposed to be the mantle of the left and by me calling that out he said that i was a secular extremist which is that for somehow i don't respect people of faith when in fact in my personal life i'm actually to the right of center believer in family values and uh, not an endorser of gay marriage and other things but yet i believe that those rights are part of living in the West, and we need to reject uh, and actually stand together left and right for free speech, women's rights, gay rights, and other things, which in Iran and Saudi Arabia are treated with disastrous uh, uh, offenses against human rights. And that made him realize the hypocrisy of his position, so his only position remained to call me a secular extremist. You'd like to uh, discuss this with Mr. Varani on, on, this, on this program, in this forum. Absolutely. That's the only way for Canadians to understand what is happening under the guise of protection of Muslim rights and minority rights. They even tried to expand it to say that, oh, this is about uh, anti-Semitism, uh, any protection of all minorities, when in fact uh, 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 Ms. Khalid, who, who authored this, did it after petition E411, and that petition was based about Islamophobia. And then Barani said that, well, because I said that petition reminded me of some of the literature from Saudi Arabia and other theocracies. He said I offended the 70,000 signatories of that and offended all Canadians as a result, when in fact I'm not sure that the 70,000 signatories to E411, which evolved into M103, really understood what, what was being done to them by the Islamist movements that brought that forward, number one. Number two, do those 70,000 represent all of Canada? That's the question. Well, if Mr. Varani thinks that his position represents the view of Canadians, he shouldn't be at all concerned about appearing on the program and making his point and making his case in a debate with you. There should be no, absolutely no concern, but there's been no reply, no response whatsoever. Initially, I sent an email invitation to Mr. Varani, 
And then when I didn't hear back on that, I called the office. There was no answer, but I left a very clear and understandable message on voicemail inviting him to participate and to debate you. And again, nothing but silence coming back. That does not speak to me uh, of someone who can back up the points he's trying to make or the, or or even apologize as he should for the insult that he directed your way. Yeah, and I'll remind you, Roy, I don't know if it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, after 9-11, there was a movement uh, the Islamists led to try to have Sharia courts. And initially, many of these same folks were against it, myself, Tariq, Raheel, others. And nobody listened to us until finally the feminists on the left woke up and uh, the, the move to start having Sharia courts in Canada was uh, defeated. And it was defeated because finally the liberals woke up to what was being, how their movement on the left was being hijacked under identity politics. So I would ask, you know, Barani obviously doesn't want to be exposed about his ideas. I would ask other liberals uh, who also lectured to me uh, briefly, but off sort of more dismissively rather than the focus that Barani had, uh, to really engage reformers on this issue, people who share their values on free speech, on individual rights versus tribal rights and uh, against misogyny. If they really embrace what we stand for in the Muslim reform movement, then they should really give us t- the time of day to not only have us come to that committee, but look at what we're offering and what really does Muslims best. Because if you really want to work against bigotry against Muslims, the best way to do that is to help mobilize reform, to have Canadians see us be the most important asset against radical Islam. Doing that is not done by coddling Muslims that they're the victims. It's done through standing up for Canadian values, standing up for Canadian heritage, which is what that committee is about, and uh, uh, amplifying those voices rather than the voices of victimization. And that's what Islamophobia's term does. Well, you can bet that this conversation... We'll get back to Mr. Barani. For all we know, he's listening to it now. And uh, we'd definitely invite him to participate on the program. And as far as inviting you as concerns, they invited you in order for you to express your opinion on M103. And as someone said many years ago, if you didn't want to hear what I had to say, you shouldn't have asked the question. Right. Right. It was more like I became a prop. Uh, for uh, his agenda, which uh, we all know what that was. And if he really wants to uh, demonstrate that their committee's deliberations over the next two to 300 days is supposed to be a fact-finding mission rather than a uh, exercise in partisan one-upsmanship, then uh, I think they need to revisit what they're doing in that committee. And have the debate with you right here next weekend. Amen. I'd be happy to anytime. All right. Zudi, good talking to you. Thank you so much. Take care, Roy. Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Come on, Mr. Verani. I'll stay, I'll stay neutral. You can talk to each other, debate one another. I'll be neutral. But if you invite Mr. or Dr. Jasser to the Parliamentary Committee to express his views and thoughts on M103, then you call him an extremist. You're doing so as a representative of the Canadian people. In the hall of the people. You need to back that up. You need to be able to speak to Dr. Jasser on the public airwaves and say to him what you think he needs to know. And challenge him in front of Canadians. So we can all decide whether you have a point or whether you're just taking advantage of a situation. We've heard from Dr. Jasser. Now we'd like to hear from Mr. Varani and certainly have the two of you debate one another on this show next weekend. I'll follow up with another invitation or two if necessary. Otherwise, contact me at Roy at RoyGreenShow.com or just reply to the phone call or the email. Contact information is included in both. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. International headlines all week long as U.S. President Donald Trump traveled Asia visiting Japan, China, South Korea before participating in the APEC summit in Vietnam attended by Canadian PM Justin Trudeau. Along the way, the North Koreans called Trump old and Trump fired back at the DPRK. Dictator is short and fat. So what was accomplished and how do America's military members 
feel about this Commander-in-Chief, Colonel Peter Mansour, a former executive officer to General David Petraeus during the surge in Iraq. He's the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour was also the commander of a tank brigade uh, before being assigned to General Petraeus. Colonel Mansour, good to have you with us. And may I begin with this? What's your assessment of Donald Trump as commander-in-chief generally? Um, you know, he he, uh, he likes the military. He admires um, uh, senior leaders in uniform, despite what he said in the election. He's put three of them at key positions in, in his uh, administration, Secretary of Defense James Mattis, H.R. Uh, McMaster, the, the National Security Advisor, and, and, uh, and General Kelly as his chief of staff. So, you know, I, I think he, he gives a lot of leeway uh, to military advice. But on the other hand, you know, he is uh, the tweeter-in-chief. I, I, I watched the Country Music Awards the other night, and I think uh, Carrie Underwood and Brad Paisley hit the nail on the head when they said uh, maybe next time he'll think before he tweets. Yeah. It, it, is, it does go on and on and on. It, does become a, it becomes a distraction, and it becomes annoying after a while. Yeah, and it doesn't do any good. I mean... It, it, it's one of those things where you le- you learned on the playground, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And most uh, most administrations have just allowed North Korea to to bluster away and then and not say anything back. But uh, Donald Trump is not that kind of person. He has to hit back when when he has hit personally, and that he's shown that time and again during the campaign and, and as president. So. I can expect we can expect this to continue. How would that work for you as a military commander or General Petraeus as a military commander in theater if you were to react to every stimulant that came your way that was disturbing or annoying? You know, I really don't think it will affect the uh, the war fighters. Um, you know, they're they're not going to um, you know they will abide by their oath of office and they're they're not going to uh, say anything bad about the president, and so he will. Uh, in turn, support them. It, it, it has more to do with his relations with uh, foreign uh, governments, and in that sense, uh, you know, he's easily provoked. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm afraid that uh, some nations can use that to their advantage going forward from here. How has he impressed you or failed to impress you on his Asia tours? South Korea, Japan, China? How? How's? What has he done? as far as getting your attention is concerned? Uh, well, in terms of uh, uh, knitting uh, our alliances together and, and uh, saying the right things in Japan and South Korea, I think he gets a, about a B. Um, in terms of his relations with China, you know, he seems to get along with President Xi. He likes strong uh, leaders, and whether they're democratically elected or not, and, and that seems to be going well. But on the other hand, he's doubling down on his... Uh, his dislike of free trade agreements, and unfortunately, the United States is being left out as Canada and, and others lead the way on putting together the the Pacific Trade Agreement uh, that will exclude the United States and, and may include China. So, in that sense, I think he, he's not doing the United States um, a whole lot of good economically. But it, it goes to what he believes in that free trade uh, eliminates American jobs and it's bad for our economy, which I don't think is true. We watch uh, with great interest to see what your president is doing, because inevitably and invariably, given where we're located, uh, whatever you do, whatever he does as the president of the United States is going to affect us, regardless of who's in power in our country. But I want to go back to something that I asked you probably six months or so ago when there was a real crisis situation that had developed between North Korea and the United States or North Korea and Western nations, more more predominantly the United States. And I asked you, it was on a Saturday, and I asked you whether you would be surprised if war broke out in the next 48 hours. And you said, no, you wouldn't be, given the circumstances that existed at that time. Given the circumstances that exist today, with Mr. Trump having just been, or still in Asia, with Mr. Trump having call, uh, called Kim Jong-un uh, short and fat, and the North Koreans calling Mr. Trump, old and the child, childish backs and forths going along. Uh, are you concerned that this could develop into something that would actually be a shooting war between the two countries? 
I don't think the rhetoric will cause it. Mm-hmm. I think the what would cause it is uh, North Korean possession of intercontinental ballistic missile, and um, and perhaps uh, one of these uh, missiles that they fire over Japan. Uh, they do an atmosphere. You know, imagine if they did an atmospheric nuclear test uh, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Something like that would be very concerning. I think the Trump administration would would feel they have no choice but to to try to eliminate the North Korean uh, missile and nuclear programs if if something like that were to happen. And so that that's what concerns me. This back and forth on the tweeting and the rhetoric. I, I think we that's become the new normal, unfortunately, in our foreign relations, and I I think that'll be overlooked. So what's happened over the last week or so, uh, the back and forth and the uh, the aggressive tweeting, nothing really to be terribly concerned there, but to go back to the previous scenario, it's what the North does that could create a response that would let the whole thing unravel out of control. Well, exactly. The North North Korea believes it needs uh, intercontinental ballistic missile uh, and a nuclear capability to hit the United States. And that will make it safe from attack. And uh, unfortunately, that may be the one thing that actually triggers an attack. Um, And so that's what I would keep my eye on uh, if we're worried about uh, a nuclear war breaking out on the Korean Peninsula. Colonel Mansour, you're also a military historian. History repeats itself. Have there been scenarios between other widely uh, disparate leaders that have led to... um, war and led to, uh, you know, massive destruction that you could look at and say this could be a template for what's going on now? Well, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, as Mark Twain once said. You know, there have been any number of foreign leaders that have hated each other through the years. I think, you know, the the model here is, uh, although it was between great powers, is Hitler and Stalin, who absolutely loathed each other eventually led to a, a massive conflict uh, on the Eurasian co- continent. Um, North Korea doesn't have nearly the power of the United States, and that's what's different here. And so it, it really is treading a, a fine line between being aggressive and, and thinking it has a deterrent and uh, actually triggering a conflict it cannot win. Where does Canada fit into all of this? Where does our prime minister fit into this equation? You know, I think, uh, ironically, um, with President Trump sort of pulling the United States back a little bit from leading uh, the alliances, uh, the Western world, the the liberal international order, that um, Canada could actually be one of those nations that picks up the slack. There will be a few others that could also uh, play in that realm. But Canada has a lot of soft power, and... um, if it puts a little bit more of its resources into hard power as well, it can actually be one of the leaders that holds the liberal international order together uh, while the United States goes through this political crisis internally. Please hold on, uh, Dr. Colonel Mansour. Please stay with us. We'll come back with Colonel Peter Mansour and uh, talk more about what's going on currently in the world and with Mr. Trump traveling through Asia and uh, with the other leaders in the world uh, in Vietnam, uh, Putin said that no way Russia was involved in the American election of last year. These issues are just all, they seem to be circling one another. And uh, occasionally uh, one pops to the surface and then it's submerged and another one pops to the surface. But they're in rotation. They're in some kind of rotation. As one comes back and then the next one comes back and the third one comes back. And it's just a very wobbly time that we're living in. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm speaking with Colonel Peter Mansour, former executive officer to General David Petraeus in uh, Iraq. He's the author of Surge, my journey with General David Petraeus and the remaking of the Iraq War. One of my listeners sent an interesting uh, tweet, Colonel Mansour. I just want to read it. Uh, three aircraft carrier groups are in the North Pacific right now. There's a reason for that, eh? What uh, is that? Just a is that just for show, or are they there for a, a really specific reason? Well, they're there to send a message uh, to North Korea that we have the power to do them great damage um, if uh, they don't um, come to terms on their nuclear and missile programs. They're taking advantage of, of a normal rotation uh, 
where one carrier would come in and another carrier would would go back to the United States and and um, and what they've done is they've kept them all on station um, for a period of time so that um, uh, they can operate together and 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 train and but it's a it's definitely a message to Kim Jong Un uh, you know either either come to terms or this is the kind of power that can be arrayed against you or pay the price. Yeah, I, uh, President Trump has uh, made that. Um, uh, quite clear on, on any number of occasions, and uh, you've got to believe it. Um, you know, there's a lot of people during his campaign and during his presidency say, saying, oh, he doesn't mean what he says. He doesn't really, you know, he'll change his ways. In fact, everything he said, he has followed through on, and uh, I'm not sure why this would be any different. What power does the commander-in-chief actually have? Is he the, can he order essentially what he wants as far as military action is concerned, or is it limited? Well, the Constitution give, gives the United States Congress the power to declare war, but it's only declared war about a half a dozen times in the nation's history. On the other hand, the presidents, various presidents, have used military power on hundreds of occasions. So he has relatively unlimited power to, um, to strike as he sees fit. And Congress has passed, uh, after the Vietnam War, they passed a War Powers Resolution, which says he has up to 60 days, basically, to use military force. And, and um, within 48 hours, he's got to tell Congress why he's doing it. But he has 60 days before he has to pull the troops out, unless Congress gives him an authorization. So the power of the presidency in the United States is is, is pretty robust. Now, you mentioned before the break if I remember the exact word you used, were an internal crisis as it as it goes forward in the United States. When you said that, what were you referring to? Now, the United States has has uh, divided itself into tribes, and um, where there used to be a center that where the parties could come together and cut deals in Congress and so forth, you don't see a lot of that anymore. Um, and it, it's become our politics have become you know my way or the highway. And uh, we've demonized the other side. And as a result, the United States is becoming ungovernable. And I'm hoping that this period is going to pass. I mean, we've, we've had these periods in the United States before. Unfortunately, one of them led to a civil war. But, um, you know, this, this is uh, doing great damage, I think, to the United States internally and to our position in the world. And uh, I just hope that cooler heads prevail and we can find the center again. But it doesn't seem to be... Um, within reach right now. It's finding its way into the streets of your, of your country as well. Well, it is, um, you know, on both sides. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, you know, the reaction to Charlottesville and to St. Louis and to other places shows how divided we are as a country, you know, where some people see uh, justice being done, other people see a law, law and order issue. And um, never, you know, never the twain shall meet. They, they just cannot, too many people just cannot put themselves in the shoes of the other side and see where they're coming from. Colonel Mansour, is there a role for the military in a situation like that, for the American military? If the, if the country's stability internally starts to be significantly rocked, does the military have a role to play to get things back in control? I'm not talking about a junta. I'm not talking about a, sort of the old South American uh, model that we've all seen and heard reported about. But is there a role that the uh, military might have? Well, the oath of office for our military personnel uh, say that they'll protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that domestic part, um, of course, refers to situations such as the Civil War where you have a rebellion against the United States. Actually, the most recent city declared in rebellion against the United States was Los Angeles in 1992 with the the massive riots that uh, rocked the city then, and federal troops were sent in to calm down, calm order, or create order again. So, yes, there is a role. Um, It's not used uh, very often in American history, and I hope it doesn't come to that. But uh, our troops are... Uh, you know, one of their obligations is to is to restore order in the United States if there is a rebellion against the government. It's disturbing that we even have to talk about this sort of thing, isn't it? Oh, it's horrible. I just, 
you know, I shake my head at uh, at the news every day, and I'm just hoping, like I said, that we can find the center again. Yeah. I, I always uh, considered it a privilege to speak with you about uh, about issues like this because I uh, I just always get the sense that you're going to give us the uh, the straight story and the truth, and we can and we can work much better um, with the truth than we can with sound bites. Colonel Mansour, thank you for the time. I appreciate that, Roy. Always a pleasure. All the best to you, Colonel uh, Peter Mansour, former tank brigade commander and executive officer to David Petraeus, General Petraeus in Iraq. Sobering stuff, isn't it? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It seemed to me that the issue of sexual harassment of women in the public arena started to become, as it should have long ago, the really forefront issue when the Roger Ills challenges and complaints and Bill O'Reilly and others at Fox News were um, accused of having been engaged in sexual harassment and O'Reilly and Ailes having paid money to uh, uh, buy silence. And then, of course, there's Harvey Weinstein, and from there it's been one after another after another. The accusations are accumulating as famous and successful men are accused of being sexual harassers and some of being rapists. Comedian Louis C.K. was accused this weekend and confessed, sort of. Well, the three women who make up the beauties panel in our Saturday's Beauties and the Beast segment were all sexually harassed in their youth. And uh, as, as happened in the 70s and 80s, and well, probably even happens today, they were told essentially to deal with it, live with it. Hey, it's just the way it is. Boys will be boys. Not so. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, a former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Hi, Catherine. Linda Leatherdale, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, independent business journalist and vice president of Cambria, Canada. Hi, Linda. Hello, Roy. And Michelle Simpson, former liberal member of parliament, seatmate to Justin Trudeau. And now she's just a, well, she's always been a, a truth teller. But now you don't have to worry about somebody shutting you down. Yep, least of all a whip. Least of all. Yeah. So, hi, Roy. Great to have you all three with us. And for what it's worth, what happened to Michelle is also a form of harassment and or abuse. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you it, know, it, it that's might right. not be gender related, but that's abusive. <laughs> that's right. Me. So let's just, let's just, because the people are joining us all the time, people would be introduced to you individually and collectively over a period of time. Uh, Michelle, remind us, please, of what happened to you, uh, briefly a synopsis of how, what happened to you when you were informing Canadians of how you were spending your expense money as a member of Parliament. What happened after that? Oh, I, I was punished, and I mean really punished. I was silenced. Uh, there was an attempted bribe with a private washroom in my office, and none of it worked. Um, but the washroom must have been tempting, though, Michelle. <laughs> what? Oh, so, yeah. No, let me let me let me let me just, let me just get get to the point here with, with Michelle. This was your own party. Yes. Yeah. So this was this was in the House of the People. Yep. And, and it was, I was not allowed to speak. And it was and it was led by the man who wanted to be the Prime Minister of Canada. Yes, and thank God that didn't happen. And who was that at the time, Michelle? Sorry. Michael Ignatieff. Oh, Ignatieff, yeah, yeah. But, and yet, you know, I mean, I think recently of that Newfoundland MP who, who um, voted against um, the, gov- the Liberal government on the uh, small business tax changes, and he was, he was punished. Oh, and that yeah. Was a few months ago. Catherine, but, was that... Nothing's changed. A, okay. On a whip vote. They feel obliged to be able to do it. This wasn't about a vote. It was about a principled stand. Michelle, was, was gender ever brought into the discussion into with anybody when they told you to stop informing Canadians what you spent on, on your uh, expenses? How you spent no, your expenses? No, I, it didn't. It really didn't. I think if I'd been a male 
and done the same thing, I would have been treated the same way. I think you're right in that case. Catherine, do you remember a specific case, specifically, that has stayed with you throughout the years of sexual harassment that took place where somebody really just harassed you? Oh, <laughs> several. Several. Yeah. Absolutely. Several. And the funny thing is, and at the time I was very young, and by the way, you know, so, something that I think is a little misleading is that this isn't only a function of youth. It partly is. But it is also largely a function of power. Because yeah. I found, once I got to my early 30s, and I was still relatively young and stuff, um, but I started to be a manager. I started to actually get some position power, as they call it. You know, I had some authority. And I'm not saying the harassment went away, but but I felt more able to counter it. So when somebody said this to me, I'd kind of say, hey, Charlie, you know, I'm a manager here, so you keep that up and, uh, I, you know, you're, you're going to have problems. But what was funny is a couple of the, insta- when I had become president of CFIB, a couple of these harassers slash abusers then wanted um, to do business with CFIB and actually came to me as the head of it. And I told them, I said, you harassed me when I was 26 years old or whatever. And they, and they went, oh, what, what? Because, of course, just like a lot of these guys in Hollywood, these people delude themselves that people want it. And I'll never forget saying to one of them, you know, and of course at that point I could, right? He had no power over me. I said, do you really think in your fondest dreams that my 26-year-old self would want anything to do with that person that was you back then? I was a little more insulting. Okay, I'm going to have to take a break. I'm going to have to take a break in just a second. How do you feel emotionally as you're relating what happened to you? I mean, does it still have an impact? Oh, of course it does. Good, good. That's what I want to know. I'm myself in a way, and yet I also understand why at the time as a young kid and often yeah. often you're shocked by it when you're young you go what, what's going yeah. on here and a lot of these hollywood people okay. said the same thank you for the call the reactions are never predictable but the fact of uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault never go away but uh, stand up for yourself at all times and don't be afraid to speak out somebody will listen particularly now Shell Simpson, Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next Saturday. Thanks, Roy. Look forward to it, Roy. Okay. All the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.